All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is August 27th, the year of our Lord, 2020. To say jam-packed would be an understatement. Just a slam-packed show tonight. There you go. New way to describe it. I'm looking at a rundown, which is hand-drawn with very, very informal bullet points in front of me. We've got camp whispers and intel from all three major Power 5 conferences that are left at the table tonight. Uh, We've got a major injury, unfortunately, to talk about at Georgia, and we're not just going to dwell on the injury. Like, what does it mean? How does it impact Georgia and your team, potentially? And this is going to be one that potentially shakes up the SEC championship picture, playoff picture. You get the drift there. The Big Ten. We, we try and move away from it, but yet the Big Ten continues to be the faucet that it's not even slowed to a drip yet. There's a steady flow of new drama that comes out of the Big Ten, and drama's not necessarily the currency with which we run this show on, but you know that we've been talking about this a lot, and we've got very strong opinions on it, and so we got some stuff to talk about with the Big Ten tonight. I mean, there's been news, I would call it pretty significant, that's broken just this afternoon, and recruiting. We have not spoken about recruiting a whole lot on this show because it's A, the summer, and B, a dead period, a COVID dead period, and C, you know, it normally is not going to ramp up until later in the fall. Well, as we said in March and April, when things first went on hiatus, we told you there was going to be innovation born through necessity, and it's happening. It's happening at Oklahoma. It, It happened at Georgia over the weekend, and so... I think a lot of folks are being critical. Maybe they're kind of whispering and tossing some accusations, and we're not going to traffic in that tonight, but I just want to suggest let's be careful about the accusations that we're tossing around because your program, your team, fill in the blank you, probably going to be doing what the Sooners and Dogs did over this weekend in the coming weeks. So before we get started tonight, I said it on the Sunday night show. Let me repeat it for those of you who have tuned in tonight for the first time in a couple of weeks. I challenged you, gave a good old-fashioned call to action a couple of weeks ago, get us to 500 five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts. Some of you said, what if I don't listen in Apple? What are you talking about Apple so much for? Just happens to be a metric that matters at this company. So that's why I was talking about Apple. And I thought it was going to take, as I told Colin, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks to get us there. Took 48 hours to get us there, and now we're we're approaching 600 there. So uh, next challenge is get us to 1,000. But I told you, if you get us to 500, we're adding a third live show per week. And we are adding a third live show per week. So this coming Tuesday, actually, we will debut the first Tuesday show that we've done since Late Kick's been at 24-7. And every week thereafter, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, Late Kick Live. There you go. We will also be doing a second Late Kick Extra podcast per week. So what does all this mean for you? Well, it means you're going to have a podcast form of this show five days a week. So those of you who like to listen driving to or from work, you like to listen on the job, you like to listen mowing your grass, and you get through the one or two episodes we've been giving you a week really quickly, and then you're left waiting to next week, no longer. We're going to have you a whole lot of stuff to listen to, because there's going to be a whole lot to talk about. So thank you for that. Continue if you haven't already subscribed to the YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast, five-star reviews, and the like. All right, that's enough of that. Now, let's dive right in. We've kicked off every show over the last week and a half, and we'll continue to do so until the season starts with whispers and intel that we're gathering from our incredible network of team networks and team insiders at those networks. And basically what I want to know is dive beyond the headlines out there, and let's talk about what really matters. I mean, a lot of you are hardcore college football fans, so 
you know, if you're working a nine to five job and you don't have time to keep up with all this, what's the stuff you need to know? That's what we're trying to do to kick off every show this time of year. So let's start at LSU. Eric Gilbert is a guy, very high profile. It was a high profile recruitment. It surprised me and a lot of other people when this guy did not end up at Alabama. And if not Alabama, he didn't end up at Georgia. This is a five-star tight end, at least by classification. He looks like he could play anywhere he wanted to on a football field out of the Marietta, Georgia area. So it's kind of near Atlanta for those unfamiliar. And so he has enrolled at LSU. Uh, This is a guy who's going to be, and was always thought to be, an instant impact true freshman guy. Uh, I am of the belief after listening to folks out of LSU, you know, Shade Dixon and the guys that go 24-7 and talking to some folks close to that program, as much as we were talking about Derek Stingley last year, who lived up to his billing and then some, as much as we were talking about Stingley on their defense last year and the instant impact he was going to have, Eric Gilbert is this year's Derek Stingley. He just happens to play on the other side of the ball in a different position. This is a guy that the moment he stepped on campus was the best tight end they had on that team, and it was a guy who immediately gave them the opportunity to continue to progress in what they wanted their offense to be the moment they hired Joe Brady and the moment that Ed Orgeron hit the shift button. And that is an offense that, to really break it down, just doesn't have to substitute a whole lot. You got guys on the field that you can bring in tight and you can go power and then you can split them out wide and you can run full spread concepts. That's what they could do last year. Uh, That's what they want to be able to do now and in the future. And a guy like this provides you that ability. And I'm not telling you that there's ever a slam dunk. Like there's no sure, sure thing, but as close to a sure thing as you get, Eric Gilbert is. So it's not going to take to week five or week six. Eric Gilbert, instant impact guy at LSU. And how great does it feel if you're an LSU fan or you're just an observer of LSU football? You know, it used to be that they they brought in a lot of five-star receiver talent, but it never scared you. If you had to play LSU, it never scared you because you knew what offensive system or lack thereof they were plugging that talent into. Well, now things have changed down there. So it's got to be really nice if you're an LSU fan to no longer have to worry, all right, well, maybe this this five-star receiver or tight end, maybe he'll have like a 650-yard season sometime down the road. No, that's not the case there anymore. Now, we go up the road to Tuscaloosa. Things are interesting there. Got a lot of talent. Things are really interesting there. Nick Saban was talking the other day in one of his media availability sessions uh, or press conferences, if you will, and he was talking about what they lacked last year. I was listening to it driving home the other day, and he was talking, and he gave a pretty direct answer to whatever question he was asked about how they just totally lacked the identity they wanted to have last year. I don't think that's any breaking news to anyone, but he's rarely that direct. And essentially what he said, if there was this translator on the bottom of the screen, he says, defense sucked last year. I mean, I'm not happy at all with what we were, and I'll tell you what that does. They always have opportunity at the best programs, but it especially opens the door to where you really hit the reset button totally. And every job's up for grabs, and you go out on the recruiting trail, and you look for guys and bring them in and want them to play immediately. A few years ago, they had a kid, you remember him, by the name of Minka Fitzpatrick, who came in out of New Jersey. Five stars, lived up to all the hype and then some, and he started as a true freshman for him. And they got a guy right now by the name of Brian Branch. He was a high four-star defensive back out of Georgia. And they've brought him in. And I'm certainly not doing any comparisons to Minka Fitzpatrick. But that kid right now, it should be noted, is running with the first string, the ones, at the star position, kind of the nickel position for Alabama. And the more folks you talk to at Alabama, 
the more you're realizing. Brian Branch on defense and Javon Baker, for that matter, another four-star receiver they got out of Georgia on offense. Like those two guys in particular, Branch is who I'm talking about. Those could be day one starters as true freshmen, at least day one contributors as true freshmen for Alabama. And so then you start to ask yourself, okay, well, I mean, is this a Minka Fitzpatrick type guy? What made Fitzpatrick great was he was world-class from the neck down and world-class from the neck up. He was like a a 35-year-old man from the neck up. He understood the game. He seamlessly grasped Nick Saban's defense, which is probably the most complex at the college level. Those guys are few and far between. If Brian Branch is one of those guys, that goes a long way in answering one of the few question marks that you really have about Alabama this year, and that's replacing so much talent in that secondary. You got Pat Sertan, and you know you can count on him, but there are several question marks. If Brian Branch comes in as a true freshman, and he's the answer to one of those question marks, which they, in a growing manner day by day, think he will be, then that greatly alleviates one of the concerns you have for Alabama. Now we go south to Tallahassee, Florida. Let's go to the ACC. There is some running back depth emerging at Florida State. Now, Deshaun Corbin, who used to be at Texas A&M and he transferred, that's their number one. Any preview magazine you bought, any up-to-date review of Florida State football that you see, Deshaun Corbin's going to be listed as their number one running back, and he is, and I, I would agree with that. But the depth behind him has been something that Florida State fans have kind of talked about. And there is a name. This kind of happens in a lot of camps. There's always a name that seems to be on the tip of everyone's tongue. As soon as you ask, everybody has the same name that they want to mention. And right now, it's Lawrence Toafili down at Florida State. He's a true freshman. He's a running back. Mike Norvell loves him. Everyone loves him. Versatility, really, he's got a very, very good skill set for what they want to do. Let's just say it that way. So, We're going to enter week one, week two, week three, and Ja'Shawn Corbin's going to be the guy there. But what Toafili's going to give them is, first off, he's going to give them depth. He's going to give them versatility. And I would venture to think that if we hit the reset button, or maybe let's put the reset button to the side. If we were to hit the fast forward button right now, and we were to be given a preview of what Florida State's running back depth situation is going to look like come early November instead of early October, I would not be shocked if Mr. Toafili's uh, carries per game total had steadily gone up, up, up to the point where it may be a 1 and 1A situation in the backfield for Florida State. So that's good news there. Staying in the ACC, haven't talked about North Carolina in a couple of weeks. And essentially, the way we do the ACC is, you know, we don't, we haven't talked about Clemson a whole lot. And it's certainly not because we're ignoring them. It's just that we know what they are. We know who they are. I mean, when we're talking about the ACC here, we're trying to find anyone with the potential to maybe challenge Clemson. So it's, it's not anything personal against Clemson. I mean, we, we don't talk about them a lot because they're so good. If they played in the SEC, we'd talk about them more because they'd be challenged more. But, I mean, what, what are we talking about? Like, who's going to keep it within three touchdowns of Clemson? So let's talk about North Carolina because North Carolina is a team that yeah, it's kind of been on the periphery, have the Tar Heels of maybe if this goes right, maybe if that goes right. You know, they finished last season strong at, trending in the right direction, you know all the axioms. So I've been concerned. I've been, I've been excited. Let me start off with the positivity. I've been excited about their wide receiver depth and still am. I'm excited about what they have at quarterback with Sam Howell and still am. So I reach out over the weekend, getting some feedback and looking at our 24-7 Inside Carolina website and seeing some of their intel and some of their practice reports. And, you know, right now, a lot of the 
quote-unquote concerns out of uh, the Carolina camp is, well, our, our quarterback wide receiver exchange, the passing game, is just not quite clicking yet. Let me put this about as plainly as I can. I'm not worried about that. That is of little to no concern to me. They've got good talent at quarterback. They got good talent and depth at wide receiver. They got plentiful options at wide receiver. That's going to work itself out. Here's what catches my ear and what catches my eye. When I hear Mac Brown saying things like, we only got about six that we trust on the offensive line right now, that's not enough. It is not enough because there is never a season in the history of college football, or rarely is there a season where you just go wire to wire with the same five you had in series one of week one on the field come season's end. You only got six. Your head coach is telling you you only got six that you feel comfortable going to war with. Got to have more. So they got to build depth there. And here's the other problem. The other problem is on the opposite line of scrimmage. Defensive line, they know that they're too thin there. And they're trying to kind of manage repetition right now because the few guys that they know they can depend on, they don't want to wear out in camp. And so they're having some issues there too, which ultimately, you know, kind of leads me to understand and probably leads you to understand why we've been excited about North Carolina. But to this point, it's been kind of hard to endorse them as a serious contender if your two biggest question marks or two of your biggest question mark units are (laughs) offensive line, defensive line. They may be playing this sport in the year 3000, but line of scrimmage is always going to be the name of the game in the sport of football. So if you got questions there, we've got to hold off on you a little bit. Still excited to watch them. And then we go back to Texas. Texas defense. Talked about it last show, talked about it show before last, and I continue to talk about it again. The only thing that I can say about the returns that we're getting out of Austin in regard to Texas defense is just show me at this point. The reviews could not be any more glowing. Yeah, I mean, maybe you want a couple of more pass rushes to emerge, but by and large, no Longhorn fan is upset with what they are hearing and or seeing out of camp right now regarding the Texas defense. So at this point, it's just show me. Like, I want on-field, in-season validation of something that we haven't seen at Texas in quite a long time, and that would be a truly dominant defense. Defensive line depth, we we talked about it. I'm not going to beat that dead horse. It's excellent. They are extremely deep there. It's one of the deepest units in the entire country, any position. There is excellent competition at defensive back at Texas right now. You got, and this is great to see, like this happens at Bama, happens at Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson. You got guys who may start one year, who return and still find themselves in danger of getting bypassed on the depth chart. They're not injured. uh, They don't have emotional problems. It's just that's how good the competition level is at the position. That's what's happening in the defensive backfield at Texas right now. That's a really good thing. Because what it promises you is, by default, whoever is starting has won a knife fight of a competition in preseason camp. And if for whatever reason it doesn't work out with the chosen starter, you got to back up that's probably just about as good that you can trot off the bench. Injury situation, fill in the blank. Like, ditto, that too. So I was looking on the Horns 24-7 board earlier today, and one of the posters over there asked the question that I'm wondering. Okay, with, with all of these great reviews out of preseason camp, could it really be that Texas was just an elite defensive coordinator away from making a run the, the entire time? Like, is Chris Ash walking in the door? Is that really all it took to be continued? Because we haven't played a game yet. But I'll tell you this, if everything that you're hearing about this Texas defense verifies, to steal a meteorological term, out of preseason camp, this only bolsters my gut right now, which is leaning towards picking Texas to win the Big 12. Haven't made that official, 
But more and more, I feel confident in Texas. So that's the latest we're hearing out of camp, and we will keep that coming to you every show that we have until the season kicks off. I didn't mention Georgia there because I'm going to mention Georgia here. Big injury news. Woke up this morning and saw it confirmed from pretty much everywhere. Don Blaylock, high four-star receiver, was going to be a sophomore this year, uh, tore his ACL. Now, a lot of you remember he tore his ACL in the SEC championship game, and that was against LSU, and that was one of several big blows they had in that game. And he rehabbed, worked his tail off, and then tore it in the same knee again yesterday. Let me tell you a little bit about Don Blaylock. And if you want to hear more thorough reviews, I would encourage you, go listen to the Junkyard podcast. It was, uh, it's the podcast that Rusty and Kip and Jake do for the uh, Dogs 24-7 website on the podcast side of things. And they talked for 10 minutes. I listened to him today talk about his recruitment and how mentally he just handles things so differently. Those of you who are fans of the old school approach of the not so much look at me approach and not so much seeking the spotlight. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that. I mean, you get one recruitment in your life, so enjoy it. But some guys handle things like 40 year old men and they commit and then you don't hear another word from them. And then they walk in, get ready to work and you don't have any trouble out of them. That's him. That's Don Blaylock. That's everybody that you ever have spoken to in this industry and close to Georgia about Don Blaylock. They say the same thing. He would be the last kid on the face of the earth you would ever expect to get in trouble. So from that standpoint, everybody hurts right now for him. Like it's the not that you would ever want this to happen to anyone, but that's the last kid that you would want this to happen to. So on a personal note, from us to him and his family, uh, we send our prayers to him. Now what we talk about because we can't do anything about the injury, is what does it mean for Georgia? Because this, obviously, if you're looking at it bigger picture, extends beyond just Georgia. I mean, they got big games. They got four big ones back-to-back-to-back-to-back in the first half of the season that could very well define their season. And you're installing a new offensive coordinator, a new offense there. One of the biggest questions was going to be, what kind of jump in production can we get from this wide receiver core? Well, this is a huge hit, obviously, to that. Don Blaylock, now he still had work to do, okay? He was not 100% back physically, but, you know, if Kirby Smart were to have painted you his plan A, his best case scenario for this year, it was going to be George Pickens bursting on the scene further, and then it was going to be Don Blaylock. And Pickens and Blaylock were going to be a very solid one-two, again, in a perfect world, about as good a one-two punch as you were going to see pretty much anywhere in college football. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen. So where do we go from there? Where does Georgia go from there? And the kind of the bigger question to piggyback off of that is, how does it answer that that question that we've been asking about Georgia and Georgia fans have been asking about the Georgia offense ever since the end of last year and then the subsequent hiring of Todd Munkin? And that question has been, what kind of change are we going to see in the offense here? They pretty universally accepted that what we were doing offensively, not good enough. So we want to change. Kirby Smart gave them a change. And he goes and hires Todd Munkin, which would suggest to you that he agreed with the fan sentiment. So he hires Todd Munkin, and then they go get Jamie Newman, and then they get JT Daniels. And those are two great options at quarterback. And then you have some young talent that are slowly maturing and growing on your roster at wide receiver. And now all of a sudden, one's down, and you missed spring two, and you got probably the best defense in the country. And so all of that kind of rolls into this ball of asking that question again. If Kirby Smart knows he's got that defense, 
And there are question marks offensively, like how willing is he going to be to just fully overturn the identity of this offense this year? Now, this is the great question in front of the camera. This is the great question behind the scenes. Everyone's talking about this. Everyone in Georgia's circles is talking about this. There are some people who think it will look radically different from week one. There are other people who think you may have some bells and whistles thrown in there, and conceptually, you may see some different things schematically, but by and large, it's just going to be what George has been under Kirby Smart. And he's going to try and ride that defense and be opportunistic offensively and win a championship that way. Wouldn't shock me either way, to be honest with you. I think it would probably shock me far more at this point if they were to go radical change. Again, losing the spring is a big part of this. So that's the one big question. The other big question is, well, now you take Don Blaylock off of the depth chart here. Who's next up? And if you are familiar with Georgia football, you know names like Demetrius Robertson, who's a former five-star receiver in his own right, and Kyrus Jackson. Those are, those are well-known names on their depth chart. But to me, when we go back to the early signing period, and we were actually, the camera Colin has me on right now, behind that, there's this stage in our studio, and we were seated there, and we were talking about last-minute flips. And we were doing this on signing day, but we were looking back to the early signing date because that's when Georgia had flipped Jermaine Burton from LSU at the last minute. It had kind of been in the works, but it was a last-minute public flip from LSU and signed with Georgia. And that was a big get at the wide receiver position. Now, at the time, you probably didn't think that you were going to need him. It would be nice to have him. You didn't think you were going to need him as a true freshman. And maybe you still don't, but you can talk about Kyrus Jackson. You can talk about Robertson, and those are good players. To me, they got to have Jermaine Burton. That's a guy who is, they really need him to pop. They really need him to rapidly develop to the point where they can use him this year. I haven't heard a whole lot about him out of camp. That's not good or bad. I'm telling you, I personally haven't heard a whole lot about him. I know Georgia fans are really razor sharp focused on him right now. That's the name to focus on right now. And that could be one of those deals where you never know at the time. Like you never know which recruit you lose or which one that you get that you didn't think you were going to have, you never know which one player could be the difference in one or two wins or losses for you in a year. You can't quantify it. It's very hard to know because football games are really weird and that ball bounces really funny ways. Who's to say that Jermaine Burton doesn't step up and make four catches for 87 yards and two touchdowns against Kentucky in an otherwise sloppy game? the week after they played, who is it, Alabama, whoever, and they win an ugly game because of Jermaine Burton. Who knows? Point is, you got to have him on campus to use him, and they got Burton. So hopefully he's a guy that can make a jump for Georgia this year. But it's a big loss now. There's no way to sugarcoat that. The latest out of the Big Ten. We have spoken about the Big Ten in a variety of different ways the last several episodes of Late Kick Live, and we continue to do so. There have been several miscalculations from Big Ten leadership, use that term loosely in all lowercase letters right now, the most apparent two miscalculations that they've made is, number one, it's readily apparent at this point, as we've spoken about, they did not expect a huge blowback on the decision to postpone their season. Just point blank. They didn't expect it. And they've gotten it. I'd say they've gotten it and then some. Number two, they made another miscalculation in believing in that old PR tactic of just play possum. You know, the old adage in PR is they'll only chase you as long as you run. So if you just play possum and you just lay there, yeah, they may kick you for a second, but I mean, nobody chases something that's just laying there. And that was a miscalculation because the Big Ten has been running. They just haven't realized it. They thought we'll make the decision and then it's done. And then we're we're just going to kind of 
cross our arms and we're going to look around and say, okay, I mean, you're mad, but we made our decision. And they don't think they're running, but they have been running. Because every day that's gone by that they haven't made votes public from 13 to 14 public universities and presidents that decided this thing, and every day that goes by that they haven't publicized this abundantly clear data, remember the words, abundantly clear data that was provided to them or that was allegedly used to decide all of this on August 11th, six days after releasing a schedule. Every day that goes by that they keep all that stuff behind closed doors, it's the equivalent of running. They've been running. We told you last week, we told you two weeks ago, this is not going anywhere. That fire is not going to die up there. And we were right. And it continues to grow. I normally don't question things like play calling. If you've watched this show for a while, you know that. I don't believe in really questioning play calling because there's so much that you can't possibly know. I don't believe in questioning NFL draft decisions because normally when people are questioning those things, it's after the fact. Therefore, they have the benefit of hindsight. And I don't believe in using the weapon of hindsight, which the people who are making the decisions don't get to have. This instance is different. You could look at me and say, well, Josh, that's very hypocritical because you've been really critical of the Big Ten after they've made the decision. No, I was critical as they made the decision. So with the same information available that they had, I watched them make the decision. And in real time, I thought it was horrible. And now a lot more people in Big Ten country are stepping to the plate and saying, yeah, this is horrible. And this is going to have really catastrophic results if we don't change course here. Now, you may say, what do you mean change course? This is decided. And yeah, it seems like it is decided. But I just want to ask you a question. I was driving home the other night, and I was thinking to myself, you know, if you separate all of the fact and all the rumor and all this and that, and you just kind of clear the haze out of the room and you think clearly for a second, what even today on August 27th, even today, if they change their minds in the Big Ten, What's stopping them from starting a season on time last week of September? What's stopping that? They're still on campus. They're still practicing. So what would stop that? And outside of a terrible pride hit, I couldn't really think of a whole lot. And I asked around and I said, give me some tangible answers. Like, what is it? What mechanism has been put in place? What string has been severed that you couldn't reattach to not be able to make a season happen? No one could give me anything. There's nothing standing in the way. There are no stop signs that have been put into place. If the right people change their minds, you would have some roadblocks to overcome, but you could do it. Now, if the answer to the question is, we're not going to start the season because we haven't changed our minds. We still believe the decision that we made is the right decision. Well, if that is the retort, then I follow with this. Okay, then it's time to back it up. It's time to back it up because this, again, is not going away. It's going to be at your doorstep for a long time. Dave Biddle with our Bucknut site, that's our Ohio State 24-7 site, had a really good piece out today. I would encourage you to go look at it. It's free. Everyone can look at it. And it was basically kind of summarizing what is a rapidly growing sentiment in the Big Ten. A lot of folks thought when they made this decision, it was only a matter of time and all the other Power Five dominoes were going to fall and therefore all of this would be irrelevant. If anything, the Big Ten may look like a bunch of visionaries that made the first decision that eventually everyone was going to have to make. Folks, that's not the way this is going to happen. I don't know how things are going to conclude in the SEC or the ACC or the Big 12, but I'm telling you, I'd bet a lot of money right now they're getting their seasons off the ground. 
There's going to be college football in the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 this year. I would bet a lot of money on that right now. So how it ends is another story. But you're going to sit around, as Dave Biddle wrote in his piece today, again on Bucknuts.com, I would encourage you to go look at it, and he's talking about how the realization is starting to set in. This is a realization we have spoken about on this show for two months now. If someone out there made the decision to cancel or postpone, whatever you want to say, I view them as interchangeable right now. If someone made that decision and everyone else didn't follow and they voluntarily put themselves on that island and they were forced to look offshore and watch everyone else or some other folks play successfully college football seasons, that's some stuff you may not be able to come back from. Totally catastrophic for many different reasons. And so now we get news this afternoon that eight parents of Nebraska Cornhusker players are filing lawsuit against the league office. And they are seeking really to have the decision overturned. That's really what they want. It's not so much they're chasing money. In fact, that was in the brief that was released. They're not chasing money. And one of the quotes that was included in that release is they allege that the league relied on flawed data with no application to present data available to make a decision. So what do you think about that? Some people are for, some people are against, some people think it's time to move on, some people are beating the drum. Well, here's what I would suggest. Tell me what this hurts. Because at the very least, I think it, it's time for the Big Ten to make that vote record public if you took a vote. If you didn't, then talk about the process. Just be transparent. That's really what people want. You notice no one's really banging on the Pac-12 as much. At least they were transparent. You may not agree with the decision they made, but number one, they had different sets of obstacles out there to overcome at the state levels. And number two, they've been transparent. Like they told you exactly why we canceled and here's the reasons we canceled. And you know, if you like them, if you don't like them, that's fine, but they were transparent. And so no one's really banged on the Pac-12. Everyone's banging on the Big Ten because they've been anything but transparent. They want to know how that vote, how the decision-making process happened. They want to know why the sudden reversal, your release, a league schedule, and then you say it's abundantly clear we need to postpone six days later. They want to know the exact data that made it so abundantly clear. Because what you've released, as they're talking about here, the league relying on flawed data, the bit that Kevin Warren and company did release has been beaten to death like a pinata by people very informed. People in the medical community have looked at it and said, is this all you've got? Are you serious? This is what you're trying to pass off as legitimate reason to postpone your season? I don't think so. You better have something else. And so far, we haven't seen anything else. So in conclusion, this is very much a to be continued. Uh, talking to some people kind of in the Big Ten circle today, all of them were sort of in unison saying, here's what you need to watch next. Watch how fervently the Big Ten League office tries to squirm and wiggle their way out of having to provide this. And I ask you, again, as I did, what harm would there be in simply answering? Players, coaches, parents of players? I mean, these are people who are directly impacted by this. What would be the harm in saying, okay, here's how the vote went? Again, 13 of 14 publicly funded universities. Public universities. Northwestern, the one outlier. So you're paying their salaries. All you want to know is how they voted. You want to know what data they relied on. And you want to know why was there such a sudden reversal. That's what you want to know. Just simple transparency. And there's such an effort to keep that under wraps. So I'll lick my finger. I'll turn the page here. Ask yourself, why would that be? And then you understand why this is to be continued.
How about some recruiting? We got a question from Chase today that normally I would push to the Late Kick Extra podcast. And uh, for those of you, by the way, who I haven't mentioned this in a couple of weeks and are not aware of how that works, I answer one or two questions per episode of Late Kick Live, which you're watching or listening to right now, but I don't have time for a whole lot because it's only like a 40, 45 minute show and we try and get through as much as we can here. So we have what is called the Late Kick Extra podcast. It's not available on YouTube. We only put it in the podcast feed. We do one a week, but now we've gone to two a week starting next week. And it's just mailbag. It's just Q&A. At Late Kick Josh on Twitter, Josh Pate. 706 at gmail.com. You can look right below this video if you're watching on YouTube and you can respond to that comment with a question. And that's how we aggregate the questions for the podcast. So Chase submitted one in the um, my Twitter inbox, I think. And he said, what are your thoughts on Georgia and Oklahoma having these big recruiting weekends this past weekend? How is that even legal? So I thought we need to address this because I don't know that a lot of you are aware of this. How many of you have heard of the Sooner Summit? I know a lot of you Oklahoma fans have. The Sooner Summit happened this past weekend. It was a big recruiting event. And maybe some of you who have kind of been paying attention are with Chase. And you're saying, wait a second. What are you talking about a recruiting event? You can't be having a recruiting event. It's a dead period. No one can do anything. Well, you're right. Lincoln Riley can't do anything. Alex Grinch can't do anything. Oklahoma can't do anything. But their recruits can. Caleb Williams, top quarterback in the country, committed to the Sooners, might as well be a six-star recruit right now for all I'm concerned for what he's doing for Oklahoma. They can organize themselves, and that's what they did. It happened at Georgia, too. They just didn't have a fancy nickname for it, so Sooner Summit garnered most of the headlines. But here's what happened. What happened is Caleb Williams for Oklahoma, who is, again, the top-rated quarterback in the country this year for the 24-7 sports recruiting rankings, he kind of organized an effort to get a bunch of guys, some committed, some not, big names now. I'm not going to go down the list. Watch the Wilt Fong Recruiting Whip around on this 24-7 Sports YouTube channel if you're interested. But they got a whole bunch of guys, and they said, hey, we're allowed to go to campus if we want to. I mean, it's a free country. We can go wherever we want to, so let's go to Norman. Let's just have our own recruiting weekend. Some of you who aren't committed yet and you want to get to know me, I'm the leader of this class, I'm the alpha in this class, show up in Norman this weekend. And guess what? A lot of folks showed up in Norman. And um, the reason why people are casting stones right now is a lot of people are saying there's no way that players just organize that. There's no way that coaches weren't at least somewhat involved behind the scenes. I'm not here to tell you that because I don't have evidence of that, nor do you. What I'm saying is be careful with the accusations because while it was Oklahoma and Georgia this weekend, I applaud them because this is the kind of innovation that you have to enact through desperation. Right now, you can't do what you would normally be doing this time of year. So it was only a matter of time before someone figured out an alternate way of getting things done. And you got to credit folks like Caleb Williams. And with Georgia, they had Amarius Mims, five-star offensive tackle on campus. They had Corey Foreman, who is fresh off California. I mean, the guy flew all the way across the country on his own dime. And Terry and Arnold in town. They had a bunch of other ones too. I can't remember all of them. But the point is, You get them on campus as many times as you can, officially, unofficially, whatever the case may be. Now, a lot of people are asking, well, is it legal? Well, yeah, it's legal because they were unofficial visits. So unless you've unearthed something that is actually valid that I don't know about, yeah, everything's on the up and up. Everything's legal. It's unofficial. Fan bases, like I said, just be careful. Just be careful. If you're a Tennessee fan, if you're an Arkansas fan, if, uh, if you're a Florida State fan and you're watching this, or a Texas fan maybe since it was Oklahoma, and you're watching it saying, that's not right. Well, you'll probably be doing it by next weekend. 
I would imagine most everyone will try and figure out a way to do this. Which brings me to my next question. Who is the alpha of your recruiting class? Hopefully you got more than one, but hopefully at least you got one. And those are the kind of guys that are worth an additional star next to their name because they're essentially like a coach that's committed. They're committed, and now they've taken it upon themselves to do the work that right now the coaches can't do. In most years, they can do it, and this is just an added help. But right now, they're ultra-valuable because they're doing what coaches can't do. And the other thing that I just kind of wanted to toss in here since we were talking about Oklahoma is I was talking to Steve Wolfong the other day, and we do a weekly hit. It's the Wolfong Recruiting Whip Around. A whole lot of intel, a whole lot of recruiting juice that sometimes you haven't heard yet, and it's on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. But, you know, I was talking to Wolfong off the air, and he kind of reiterated it on the air. He said, man, the way Oklahoma is recruiting defensively right now, never seen it before. And You know, it may not show up this year. Like everyone's most recent memory of Oklahoma is LSU painting the walls with their blood in the SEC champ or in the uh, playoff semifinal game. And I mean, it was what they have 49 points at halftime. So, I mean, LSU could have named the score. And from now until eternity, until they prove otherwise, people will just think Oklahoma can't play good enough defense to win at that level. They can win the Big 12, but they can't win anything past that. I don't believe that. Maybe it has been true. But I did a segment a few months ago where I said, Lincoln Riley's going to win a national championship at Oklahoma. And the reason it's going to happen is because what they've been defensively is not what they're going to always be defensively. Alex Grinch, all the signs are there. Everyone there believes he's the right guy. I believe he's the right guy. He has begun to significantly overturn the defensive roster. But now look at the guys they are either bringing in or they are in the thick of it recruiting for. Those guys are going to be, and I think they're going to land a bunch of them, those guys are going to end up being the cornerstones in the reason why Oklahoma is going to go from being a nice Big 12 story to a bona fide annually national championship contender. And a team that you no longer look at three years from now and say, oh, dude, we're going to rip them to shreds. They'll be legitimate. Alex Grinch is the right guy. They're recruiting at a different level. I know a lot of people have to see it to believe it. I haven't seen it yet, and I already believe it with Oklahoma. Good show tonight. Uh, We've got a lot coming up. We are going, as I said, to three live shows per week starting next week, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night. If you haven't already, like the video if you're watching it live. And hey, you know what? Now that I've remembered, let me explain something as uh, as we head out of here. You know, we do the show live and we, you know, Colin builds a 15 minute pre build. It's just a countdown clock. Basically, it's to let the live audience build. Let me explain how YouTube works, okay? You do a live show on here, and then it's saved, so you can go watch the replay. But if you want to edit something off of that video, like, say, the 15-minute build-in, you can't always do it in the snap of a finger. So when we go off the air right now, I'll go into the YouTube studio, and I'll edit off that 15-minute portion, but it'll take an hour or two for it to update on YouTube. And as I sit here, as sure as it's Thursday, someone is going to pop in the comment section and call us idiots for not knowing how to edit a video. So let me just publicly explain, we are editing it and we do know how to do it. It's not that we just randomly want 15 minutes of dead air on the beginning of our videos. Believe it or not, even we have figured out that probably wouldn't be good business. So that's how that works. Can't wait to explain it again in about two hours from now in the comment section. But for the 99.9% of you who are hanging with us and who understand, thank you so much for that. We will be again back here live Sunday night, same time, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. Subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel if you haven't already. Subscribe to the Late Kick Podcast and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. 
and give me a follow on Twitter if you haven't already, at Late Kick Josh. For Director Colin, for Tani, for Jordan on the podcast side, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for watching. This has been Late Kick Live. <laughs>